Okay, so I think it can be misleading when we talk about different sides around climate. Let me just mm. go straight to the evidence. Mm. In terms of the people who are natural scientists who look mm. at the climate, a, real, a, a very small percentage of them think that um, human beings aren't causing climate change or the climate change we're seeing isn't dangerous. Mm. You know, you can look at different bits of evidence around that, but it, we're talking one to 2%. Mm. So, so when you talk about different sides, you're talking about 2% versus 98%. Yeah. <laughs> so often when we talk about sides or balance, we are projecting an idea that somehow these um, different opinions are of equal weight and they're mm. not when we look at the natural science. When we look at the public opinion, it's very similar. Only 9% of Australians think climate change isn't happening or that it isn't going to be dangerous. That's 91% of Australians mm. know that climate change is happening, know that we are playing some part and know that it has something has to happen. So again, when we talk about sides, we're talking about 91% versus 9%. Now, mm. if you cut that data by people of your age, people under 25, it goes down to 1% of Australians under 25 think that climate change isn't happening or isn't going to be dangerous. So first of all, we have to move away from language about the idea that balance means giving people who think that climate change isn't happening or is going to be good equal weight. We should give them exactly the kind of airing they deserve, which is about 1% of our attention. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so about between 1% to 9% of our attention. The real debate, the real question is, what do we do about climate change? Not is yeah. it happening, but what do we do about it? How quickly do we go in terms of the transition? And who is responsible? Who should bear the burden of the change? Now, if we were having this conversation 20 years ago, we could say, look, pri primarily governments, national governments should be responsible or big countries, so big emitters, should be responsible for acting on climate change. It's not 20 years ago. It's now. We've got a decade of action. So it means that everybody, we have to throw everything at it, everything but the kitchen sink. I suppose the question is, again, about whether you think about, well, what are some of the priorities, you know, um, how much should it, how, who should bear the burden, who should pay the costs and so forth. Um, and that's a much more complicated question, and I can talk a little bit about how the public feel about that. But I suppose the question is, I suppose the real issue is that, that when we're talking about balance and when we're talking about addressing people's views, the main thing we need to do is engage with people who know climate change is happening but are worried about the pace of the transition, right? Mm -hmm. So if we yeah. move to a completely electrified um, system in Australia, so if we electrify everything, and that tends to be the consensus, we have to basically electrify everything yeah. and make it um, and um, and make it all um, generated by renewable energy, perhaps not even 100% renewable energy, perhaps even more than 100%. So generate... Yeah more energy than we need to create things like uh, green aluminium, green steel, all those other kinds of things that we can export um, mm -hmm. that will replace things like coal and gas that cause climate change. So we certainly do need to engage with people who are worried about the costs and the pace of transition. And generally in my work, those are the only people that I generally want to engage with mm -hmm. because they accept the science. Because remember, 91% of the population largely accept the climate science. Um, so I, th I suppose I'll, that's the first thing I would say when people talk about, you know, we have to give the other side um, yeah. an opportunity to speak. The other side is not climate deniers. The other side are people who think that we've got 20 or 30 years to, to, to make the transition rather than 10. 
Yeah. Um, we also have a really massive challenge, not just in terms of reducing emissions, but in terms of drawing down the CO2 that is already in the atmosphere. Um, so we have a, a massive energy transition um, challenge, but we also have a drawdown challenge, which means pulling the CO2 out of the atmosphere by reforesting Australia and ensuring that the CO2 that's currently in the oceans, um, acidifying our oceans, we, we address that. So we've got this in incredible challenge, a doable challenge, because we've got the technology and increasingly we've got the will. And so one of the... Um, you know, the great privileges of the work I do is I'm working with lots and lots of different organisations from big climate organisations to local governments of all kinds, to companies of all kinds, to charities, you name it, who are all focused on how we can do this job. None of them are saying, oh, well, maybe the science, you yeah. know, is equivocal. There are very, there are decreasing numbers of climate deniers in our community, in our leadership at the board level, um, there's a lot of vocal climate deniers on Twitter but <laughs> and some of them in Parliament, but let's not pretend they represent, you know, the majority of people. Yeah. They don't even represent a significant minority of people. Um, most people have uh, accepting that this is something that we need to do and you are part of a growing generation of voters, leaders, consumers, citizens who are not just going to want change but demand it in everything mm. that you do. So... That's my first thing when people talk about balance. I talk about the science is in, the decision the decision makers across the world, whether it's Boris Johnson or, or President Biden, um, have made a decision as well. And it's a question of not whether we act, but how we act. Yeah, and so, yeah, and so with your book of how to talk about climate change yeah. in a way that makes a difference and about the, this concept of, talking with like people about the climate change, it's not so much talking with the climate change deniers because you need to give fair weight to them, but fair weight is 1% of weight because it's only 1% yeah, yeah. of people. Yeah. But like what, what, you're, what your focus more is on is talking to people who like acknowledge, yes, climate change is a problem, but just think that the costs of switching, say from coal to renewables within like 20 years or like doing that quickly, it's just like there are, there are too many problems with it. And it's like, that's kind of what yeah, your yeah, focus exactly. is, is like talking with these people, acknowledge that yes, climate change exists. Yes, it's a problem, but like the, the process of switching to renewables and trying to fix climate change is like, like simply like maybe not worth it or like it's going to be cost too much. And so that's kind of where- Yeah, exactly. Is. And look, and this is where the views of climate deniers or what I call climate delayism, which is almost as bad as denial at the moment, a kind of craftier form of denial, is very effective. It has a way of amplifying anxieties around. So it kind of makes kind of, you know, the future of coal and gas, you know, makes people think, oh, well, that's going to happen for another 100 years and there's lots and lots of jobs and it's all good and there's increasing, you know, demand across the world for coal and gas. All these things that are actually kind of 100, just not true. <laughs> yeah. Just not true. So, so the views of climate deniers get amplified. So the the sensible middle who want action but kind of think, oh, can we do it, um, get affected by the views of the minority, often because that minority view gets a megaphone, whether it be through Sky News or the or the, the Murdoch newspaper or even parts of Parliament. So you're right. So it's about the challenge is telling people that we've got the tools and um, we actually have to make the change. The change is already happening. Um, I did a really interesting piece of research over the summer about 
the role of um, superannuation funds in climate action was talking to somebody, um, uh, a very respected um, energy transition expert in Australia called Tony Wood. He works for the Grattan Institute. He used to work for the Clinton Foundation on energy transition. And he said, it's not a question of whether we act on climate change or not. It's now a question of whether we, we act um, effectively or ineffectively. And because Australia doesn't have an energy policy, because it has um, critical climate deniers in its ranks in parliament, and because we've had a kind of toxic politics of climate change in Australia for over a decade, it means we're acting on climate, but we're not doing it efficiently. We're not doing it in a way that actually could generate jobs or set us up for the future or make renewable energy really accessible to all Australians. Um, so, so to say that we have to prepare for the transition isn't is is misleading. The transition is on. It's happening. Yeah, the money is moving. The science now. is moving. Exactly. So the question is, do we sit on our hands and think and go la 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 la? <laughs> <laughs> la, 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 this is not happening or whatever or do we go actually Australia is really well placed to to benefit out of this in so many ways do we actively be part of it and of course that's that convincing people that that is not only possible but necessary now is mm. the greatest communications challenge so when I said that we shouldn't worry about the one or nine percent of climate mm. deniers we should only worry about them to the extent to which they're able to influence other yeah, people so in thinking we can't do this. Yeah. So like in terms of like um, we should. So what you're saying there, we should like worry about them in their ability to influence. So you're saying people in a higher like positions of power, say like politicians who like say, oh, climate change isn't real. It's not at all a worry. Mm -hmm. That that is something that we should worry about because of their like influence, the greater influence. No, I think that's right. So, so what we're seeing at the moment in federal politics, is, as you would observe, is that um, we're getting, uh, you know, in the last federal election, a very prominent climate denier in Tony Abbott was basically um, pushed out of his seat by a conservative independent. At the next federal election, you've got a whole lot of new conservative independents that are, by conservative, I mean politically and socially conservative, but active on climate, who are going to be... Um, really bringing the fight up to um, people in uh, in the government in the Liberal Party to say it's your climate policies are not good enough. So, so it is actually really important to get climate deniers out of Parliament. Why is it more important to get the? Why is it more important to get Tony Abbott out of Parliament than it is to argue with your uncle at Christmas when you're both drunk about climate? Which, if you want to do that, that's fine. I tend to think that that just causes you know family disharmony mm. and and indigestion and having spent years <laughs> listening to climate deniers and knowing that they will turn themselves into knots before they will agree with you about climate right not about mm. other things like renewable energy you can, can even convince people who are skeptical on or skeptics on climate change that renewable energy is the right thing to do but it's it's pretty much like pouring water on stone arguing with a climate denier you know um, on twitter or in your real life but why it's so important to make sure that climate deniers don't have a platform and a megaphone is because they're making really serious they're making all their stopping really important decisions that affect everybody they're actually um, not doing their job you know, if you're a member of parliament, you can think whatever you want, but in the end, you've got to represent the best interest of your electorate, the best interest of the nation based on the evidence. 
So if you're in Parliament and you're ignoring what the CSIRO tell you and what, what NASA tells you, what every single university tells you, you know, um, what you're ignoring the pleadings and advice of, you know, the CEOs of major companies, you're ignoring what presidents and prime ministers around the world are saying. If you're doing that and you're sticking your head in the sand and you're saying we're not going to do anything on climate, you don't deserve to keep your job because it's an essential part of your job that you make decisions for the public interest and the public benefit and the public health based on the evidence that you have, the overwhelming evidence. If you're not doing that, you're saying that you can, you know, that COVID's not real and climate change isn't real <laughs> and all those other things, you deserve to just become an, a normal citizen. You don't deserve to sit in the federal parliament. So that's yeah. my view. So the, my view about climate deniers is mm. that only time we worry about them is when they can influence other people and when yeah. they can influence policy yeah okay and so like so in like your so i can tell just like from like the last 15 minutes you're obviously extremely passionate about this and that's awesome and like <laughs> that and, or and, i've had a lot of coffee and a bad night's sleep <laughs> and, um, and, um, and um and every second i'm thinking my children are going to uh, destroy downstairs so probably uh, speaking and, and, a bit more enthusiastically and quickly than i normally no would. no no it's, it's awesome it's great and but also like in your book how to talk about climate change you describe how like you're now on an endless emotional roller coaster shifting from fear to anger sadness hope and acceptance and even like a form of denial like could you talk because as i mentioned before our project is a lot about like university students who like know that climate change is like real know that it's a problem but are just like worried about it it's just like causing like a worry bigger than a small worry like an actual anxiety about it could you like talk more about like your personal feelings surrounding like climate change and like well climate action or uh, lack thereof and about like how you um stay optimistic or if you're not optimistic and manage these feelings yeah i can definitely talk about that is that something that you feel sometimes oh yeah for sure like for me it's just like i i is want to make he's nodding ahead yeah I, well. I, I, I want to make as big a difference as i can and I want to try and help climate change, but then it's just like you look at the whole issue, you look at how big it is and how much involves, and it's like, what can I do? Yes. So I think, um, look, I think that one of the things that I notice is even though climate change requires collective action, right? So people working in large groups to bring about change, there is a kind of personal um individual experience that you have when you engage with climate change and um, when I talk to other people that have been through that similar emotional roller coaster that I describe in the book that you just reiterated everybody has a version of that although different it, it might be stretched over different periods of time and and depending on who they are as a human being and and what their personality and character is like um, might vacillate you know there might be more hope versus fear more optimism um, so I'm generally a very kind of um, somebody who finds um, mental health through doing things, whether it be, you know, cooking or walking or just, okay, well, how, I'm generally one of those people who wants to fix stuff. There's bad things about that as well because you can't fix climate change. Climate change is a thing and you can't fix it on your own. I suppose the thing that keeps me optimistic, and this is a, this is a rare privilege, is the work that I do is with lots and lots of different people in and inside the, the conventional climate movement and outside, so businesses of all different kinds, entrepreneurs. And so every day I'll have meeting after meeting after meeting, including a meeting that I'm having with you today, with people that are trying to find ways to do things. So 
So that helps. That's like a bulwark against depression, which is, oh, God, it's too big. So I get, I get a bit of an umbrella view of what's happening and what's possible. So that's helpful. Um, I suppose the other thing that I have is uh, I have, I talk a bit about in the book about hope around climate change. I, just, well, first of all, despair is not an option when you have small children. <laughs> so I, I really can't be in that, oh, well, it's all just too hard because I've got to look them in the eye in 10 or 15 years and say, you know, I knew this thing was coming down the track in a way that was going to dramatically affect your lives and I feel like I had to play a role. So I don't think I have a kind of moral and ethical responsibility to choose to be active, hopeful and optimistic every day in the way that I have a moral and ethical responsibility to get up every morning and make them breakfast and like fight with them for 15 minutes about cleaning teeth, which is what I did before I saw you. So I see that as part of that. Um, I, there are moments, and particularly when there are moments when I um, say, I suppose that the scope of the problem and the amount of resources of the people who were trying to delay action, remember they've got billions of dollars at their disposal, um, uh, and the scope of the problem in terms of, like I said, reducing emissions and drawing down the CO2 that's already in the atmosphere. So that combination, if you think of it like as a pull, pull you know, as a, as a pull and a, a, an immediate like kind of push-pull action that mm. you've got to do at the same time in the next 10 years, and the older you get, the shorter 10 years. <laughs> it seems like if I think, oh, what was I doing 10 years ago? That seems, <laughs> sometimes that seems like a blink of an eye. Sometimes that seems like a lot. And I know this is going to sound like I'm being, I'm advocating denial, but I talk in the denial chapter about an extent to which you do have to just push some of that anxiety aside every now and then when it gets too much, like really looking. Like, for example, I don't read much about permafrost anymore because it, I know it's a bit of a trigger for me. It just freaks me out. Like the idea of the permafrost going, I just and I just go, okay, I'm just going to push that there. There's nothing I can do about that. So I do, and all climate activists do this. All climate activists go, all right, that's a whole other thing that is a bit too overwhelming for me to think about now. So I'm just going to push that to the side because to dwell on that too much will stop me doing the job I have to do. And this yeah. is the final point I want to make. I think that really, really good activists or really good people who are in behaviour change and bringing about change in the long term recognise they can't do everything. Instead of thinking what needs to be done, you need to say, what contribution can I make? And that might be quite a small contribution, but it's part of a larger a larger, a larger whole. So I see lots and lots of challenges in the climate movement, lots of lots of things that need to be done. I don't think about what needs to be done. I think about what can I do well? I'm a really good researcher. So I just decided I'm just going to research climate change and work with people who want to do stuff about it. So I just think instead of thinking about everything that needs to happen, I think about what is my, what is my skill, what are my, what's my skill set, what's my strength, what's my contribution, and be as good as I possibly can be at that. Yeah. So I would say to any of you or any of your fellow students, yeah. there are things that you enjoy doing. There are things that you are good at. There are uh, professions that you might want to fulfill. 
you might be in, you know, in law, engineering, arts, it doesn't matter. There is a way that you can think, I want to do this thing. I really, this is the thing that I, I enjoy doing, that I'm going to earn a living. And how can I apply a climate change lens or strand through that work? And that's what's going to be my contribution. You don't have to save the world. All you need to do is be really, really good at what you enjoy doing and think about how it can make a contribution. And some of the most interesting work I do is with groups of professionals, whether they be farmers, parents, been doing work for veterinarians for climate change because climate is going to affect everything from our family pets to, you know, the cows and horses and pigs and all the rest of it that, you know, farmers like to raise and we like to eat most of the time. So, so that's what I would say, you know, when it all becomes overwhelming, work out what you work out what your threshold and, um, you know, your position of comfort and function is. Mm. Work out what you enjoy doing, what you would like to do and work out how it can make a contribution to the larger whole. And spend time talking with other people about it and also just try and derive a bit of fun and joy out of your activism as well. It is possible. Um, you'll, you'll get joy and energy and enthusiasm through acting effectively with other people. Mm. Um, we are at a really amazing point in the fight on climate where things are happening. You know, to have a president like Joe Biden, who talks about climate all the time, who's really committed to doing something about it, to having a conservative prime minister like Boris Johnson, who talks about climate, to have countries around the world, developed or undeveloped, rich or poor, regardless of where they are in the world, actually doing things on climate in South America, throughout Asia, in Africa. So, so much is happening, so many literally millions of people involved in the fight on climate so that you look at that and you think I'm not alone and that's the worst thing despair comes from this sense of it's all overwhelming and you feel very very alone in it um and that doesn't have to be the case yeah okay so it's very much a realization that this isn't an issue that we just can't like not worry about this is a very big issue but it's also a realization that I can't solve like climate change I can't fix climate change so it's a recognition of recognization and say okay because I can't fix it where is like my limit for the amount like that I can do and, and the amount that I can worry about that I can humanly worry and then okay what it's not what I can can I fix climate change what is can everyone do it's what can I actually do to personally contribute and like that's what you'd recommend yeah. to like university students yeah. no no and um I mean you know I meet people every day that are doing their bit and that's really inspirational they're not those as you know as a, as effective and amazing as people like Al Gore and Greta Thunberg are some of the most inspirational climate um, champions I've ever met have been very unassuming so I did this talk earlier this year in the Blue Mountains of climate and I met this woman in her mid-80s who kind of you know came up to me she just was beautifully dressed you know like a very very beautifully beautiful hair kind of dressed very elegant grandma and she said I've been worried about climate change for decades now you know my, my husband died recently there's not much I can do I can't go to the protests anymore or anything but she said what I do is I go out and talk to all the people my age and I tell them they have to move all of their superannuation investments away from fossil fuels so she just in her daily life because obviously she all of her friends are of her age or you know in, are retired 
she's just a, a one woman divestment campaign and she just does that that is her contribution because mm. that is what she can do because of a whole range of and it's pretty effective divesting your superannuation from fossil fuels um you know or any investments you have sends a really really strong message to the investment community that fossil fuels do not have a future should not have a future and i think of her i just think she's amazing you know she can't glue herself she can't join extinction rebellion she can't run for parliament she, those are things that she can't really do or doesn't want to do but this is something that she can do she can she's a influencer and somebody who can reach that community and to get them to engage in a behave a, a behavior change that is effective it is it is quite effective in sending a message to our big superannuation funds and our banks a message that they are receiving that they need to shift their investment mix away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy, towards nature-based solutions to climate. Um, so I think about her and I've met, you know, every week I meet people like her. And so that is that is fantastic. I aspire to be like her, although I aspire at that age to be alive and for this not to be quite the issue that it is for me now when I'm 50. In 30 years, we'll have worked out whether, you know, how effective we've been now in the work that we're doing. But yeah, so think about her and think about lots of other, you know, I think about to the extraordinary young people who are suing some of through the, our courts, suing Shell, suing the government and saying you've got a duty of care to us in the decisions you make um, in relation to what we're doing in the future. That's a bit more dramatic and they've obviously got money and support behind them. But again, these are young people who don't aren't eligible to vote for uh, run for parliament can't even vote yet, probably don't have enough superannuation or don't have any superannuation. So everybody's thinking about what lever can I pull in my own personal life amongst the networks of influence and power that I have, and we all have them, we all have some. Um, people are thinking really cleverly, thoughtfully about what they can do. Um, so I'm, I'm as inspired by them as I was inspired by kind of the more obvious um, climate change campaigners who are kind of household names yeah okay and um you mentioned just before like extinction rebellion do you think like groups like that who like have extreme activism because we actually talk to someone um do you think those are effective and like and do you think that's an example of someone realizing okay what am i good at what can i do and going off and doing that or do you think there are better pathways um than groups like extinction yeah. rebellion? look i get asked this question a lot and i think yeah. that you know, for any of you, Becky Griffin or Ben, who've ever done, studied social movements at school or high school know that all great social movements had radical fringes. So the women that threw themselves under the, the um, king's horse for suffrage um, and who died, or the women who went on hunger strike, um, while they weren't going to be the only way that women were gonna get the vote in countries like um, England, they were, it was really, really important that, you know, because what they did brought attention and really made people think, wow, there was a depth of feeling and anger around this. Um, similarly, the civil rights movement in America, the civil rights movement here, all the kinds of things that were happening probably made people at the time think, wow, that's extreme. Um, they're extremists. They're going to, people are going to, you know, they're going to undermine the cause. So I would never, ever... 
um, criticise people and people in Extinction Rebellion are genuine in their anxiety and genuine in their concern. Uh, there will always be, in a really big social change movement, um, organisations like that. And they, the, the problem is not them. The problem is that we need all kinds of things happening, right? It's the same way as we're not going to bring about change by people just walking into boardrooms and giving PowerPoint presentations, right? We need all of it. At this stage, like I said, we need everything in the kitchen sink. So I think it is really important. I think what they're doing is putting pressure on the persistent polluters and the people who continue to buy political influence and political power, particularly in places like Australia where there's very little transparency at the federal level around donations to politicians and campaigns. I think they're playing a really important role. Do I think that the only path forward to change is Extinction Rebellion? No. Do I think that it's inevitable that there's going to be organisations like that? Yes. Do I think that they play an important role? Yes. But it's not the only way. And, of course, it's not the only way. It's not... Every now and then I think I'm so frustrated and so worried that occasionally I think, you know, do I want to glue myself to a road? But it's not really my style, you know. Um, and we have to find a place in the climate movement for all kinds of people. Right? all kinds of people expressing their concern for the climate in ways that really reflect their own personality, their own interest, and, and that's what I think. It's one way, not the only way, and I would never be in a position where I would say, you need to go away so we can really get the work done. Um, that's, it's not that simple. Yeah, okay. And, like, so, and with, like, with your book about like how to talk about climate change, do you think like that was effective in terms of talking with people how it's like not just an issue of talking to deniers, it's an issue of talking um, with people who are like skeptical about like the transition and yeah. like, do you think that was like an effective work that you did? Where would you go next with that kind of ideas? Yeah, so I mean, look, I wrote the book as a way for, in some ways as a, as a way for me to understand the issue and to become a more effective climate communicator and to advise people who wanted to be. Mm -hmm. as well as to understand the complexity of my emotional response to climate change and understand why people can be presented with the climate science and go, I don't want to think about that or, mm -hmm. you know, it, how, how do we respond? I wanted also to write a book that was useful to people. Um, and so my, the biggest response, rather than depressing, <laughs> and the biggest, because there's tons of depressing climate books out there, and they're putting the science accurately and all the rest of it. So I wanted something that was easy to read, and people walked away with maybe a couple of new ideas or new tools about how to talk about climate in their own lives. And that's been the resounding response to the book from readers from around the world is they've said, oh, I kind of thought, oh, I've got to read this. And they kind of felt, oh, I've got to trudge my way through it. And so they found it easy to read, which was good and occasionally amusing. And they found it useful, right? So they just wanted to be useful. And in the end, um, that's what researchers and communicate, you know, that's what researchers and consultants should be. They should be useful for people who want to do a particular kind of job. So that's kind of what it's... Um, that's kind of been the outcome of it and that's been great yeah okay um that's absolutely awesome well like look we won't um keep you like for much like longer at all because like obviously i can hear like in the background um, can you can you, can you yeah. hear the stampede of elephants that are my children that's right um but yeah like and it's like yeah thank you for coming on and like this is just like your advice for talking about like how uh, this is a big issue but like you need to think about what you can do and like your 
talking about how how to actually think about this issue and how it's important when you're talking about people who disagree with the climate change not to focus necessarily on the people who don't think climate change is real but to focus on the people who think um maybe like transition renewables isn't like vi viable or anything but before um we let you go is there anything um last that like you wanted to say do you think to people university either university students are worried or people who think that we don't really need to take any more action uh, i suppose the first thing i'd want to say is yeah sorry our generation screwed it up <laughs> um, sorry you've got to deal with the impact of it along with you know a tumultuous um labor market and completely inaccessible housing and the desire about whether, you know, a question about whether or not you should have children and as well as COVID. Sorry about that, apologies. Thank you. Um, I suppose the other thing is I'd think about this is that this is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, be kind to yourself. There's an enormous amount to be stressed and worried about in the future. Um, know that your, um, at your generation's collective wisdom and understanding about this, the extent to which it continues to be the number one issue in, in, in research on what matters to young Australians, shows that, you know, you belie the characterisation of your generation as, you know, just worried about money and technology. You're putting things like climate change, mental health and affordable housing on the top of your list of the things that you think are really important, not just for your generation, but for a broader society. So you'll inherit positions of leadership and influence sooner rather than later, and I have a lot of trust that you'll have both the will and the technology at, you know, at your fingertips to create the most livable world that we possibly can have. But like I said, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Try and just, try and just um, take little, little steps to make your contribution and do whatever you can to have a bit of fun. You deserve to have some fun <laughs> um, while you're young. So try and um, derive as much joy and enthusiasm from your life while you deal with some of those really, really full-on issues that face you. Yeah, well, th thank you again, Rebecca. That was like really awesome. And all that you said, I think will be um, really, really useful.